The grid. A digital frontier. I tried to picture clusters of information as they moved through the computer. What did they look like? Ships? Motorcycles? Were the circuits like freeways? I kept dreaming of a world I thought I'd never see. And then, one day, I got in. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today, we are doing Disney's Tron Legacy, a full review and analysis of Joseph Kosinski's film. And if you're watching on Spotify or YouTube, you'll notice that our entire set is blue. We're on the grid. We also, but we have the blue and yellow with the Edison bulbs, Yeah, it's kind of cool. So we yeah. kind of created the aesthetic of the grid and the digital frontier that Kevin Fling created in the film. Now, Tron Legacy came out in 2010, directed by Joseph Kaczynski, the biggest directorial debut in the history of cinema with a budget of $170 million. And yes, this was his first film, written by Edward Kitsis, Adam Horowitz, and Brian Klegman, starring Jeff Bridges, Garrett Hedlund, and Olivia Wilde. Tron Legacy on IMDb is a 6.8. Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 51% critic score. Rotten, 63% audience score. It was nominated for Best Sound Editing at the Academy Awards, as well as nominated for a Grammy for Best Album. Now follows, and this is a sequel to the original Tron, which came out in 1982, obviously, Follows Sam Flynn, the tech-savvy 27-year-old son of Kevin Flynn. He looks into his father's disappearance and finds himself pulled into the same world of fierce programs and gladiatorial games where his father has been living for 20 years. Along with Kevin's loyal confidant, Cora, father and son embark on a life-and-death journey across a visually stunning cyber universe that has become far more advanced and exceedingly dangerous. Meanwhile, the malevolent program, Clue, who dominates the digital world, plans to invade the, wor- the real world and we'll stop at nothing to prevent the escape. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. How much was the budget for this film? About $170 million. Okay, because there's another movie that was a debut that might give it a run for its money. Recently? or Yeah, recently. What was it? 47 Ronin, the um, Keanu Reeves film. Okay, maybe that's bigger then. So its budget is estimated between $175 and $220 million. It was given to a first-time film director as a music video director. And it's considered probably the biggest box office bomb of the century so far because how much was invested in it only made $120 million. But I don't even think I've ever seen it. It's, it's, it's terrible. I know of it's it. It's a terrible movie. Um, but that might be actually – that might take the cake for the biggest debut of all time. But it's like – Pretty close, yeah. But it's, it, they're probably about the same. But I would say Disney might – Disney might not have 
put out the accurate numbers maybe on their total budget. No studios ever do, let's yeah. be honest. But 47 Ronin, it was, uh, I was excited for it. It didn't live up to the hype. And that director has never done anything since because you know, it was just such a bad overall film as opposed to Kuzinski, who has turned into one of the more exciting directors working in the last 10 years or so because after Tron Legacy, which was a, a fantastic debut for a first-time director, he made a very cool sci-fi film with Oblivion, which also I think you can compare it to Tron Legacy where it has its problems in the story department, but visually it's stunning and it's really well de- directed and executed. And then he did um, the Firefighter movie with Josh Brolin and Miles Teller. And then he did, obviously, Top Gun Maverick, baby. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We love us some Joseph Kaczynski. What's funny is that he made one of my favorite movies of the last few years, and it's it's without a doubt his best movie, Top Gun Maverick. It's ironic because of how little visual effects are in the film and how how, um, it's dependent on practical effects as opposed to his first two films, which are so heavily used, um, dependent on visual effects. However... They did build a lot of these sets. We watched this at the New Bev last week, and I hadn't seen it for a few years. And I'll preface this whole episode. I'm going to be a little critical of this film. I'm it, not. A, you have to be. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. And I really liked it when we first saw it, when it first came out. I think we were like 20, 21. And I've watched it. I think this is my fourth time rewatching it uh, last week. And it's just really... What I look at is it's kind of a missed opportunity in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that work really well, and a lot of it is very exciting. But then a lot of it is just honestly kind of underwhelming, kind of disappointing. And it ends up actually being quite a slow movie. But for a first film, it's really impressive. And it obviously is famous for its visual effects, which still hold up today. Aside from Clue and young Kevin Flint's face, the rest of the visual effects are phenomenal. And honestly... They, you can put them up against many modern movies, and it'll probably look better than modern movies. So what they did with the visual effects and animation in this film is incredible. But ironically, and I really noticed it the sec- this um, fourth time watching it in theaters, they did build quite a lot of sets. And a lot of that practicality really helped with the visual effects, um, combining them together, making them look and feel better. I mean, the budget was huge, and just the wardrobe department was $13 million Whoa. for making these custom suits. And I got some cool information on the suits, but I love Tron Legacy. I gave it four stars on my Letterboxd review, but also I think it does have problems. I think it has all of the pieces of a generational sci-fi blockbuster film that could have been a really great movie. It was almost really there. Great. It's so close. It gets held back, though, by pacing, the screenplay. Same thing with Oblivion, which I think Oblivion is such a great first hour Really great concept. That's a completely original sci-fi story. We don't get many of those on that yeah. scale. And I I mean, kudos to Joseph Kaczynski. He turned that into a graphic, a graphic novel, novel yeah. and then made a movie based off of it. So it's really impressive to create a world like that. Not many people have, you know, the ideas to do stuff like that. So I think he's a really impressive storyteller. He's got great ideas and concepts. But the same thing with Oblivion and Tron Legacy, they both kind of peter going into the third act and kind, kind of, of <laughs> a, kind of an underwhelming conclusion in a lot of ways. Yeah. Tron Legacy really slows down, and we'll get into it, but I think the first hour, hour and a half is really solid, and I think the visual effects alone, as well as Daft Punk making an all-time score, really make up for some of the weaknesses of the film, which we'll get into. But the suits worn by the actors in Tron Legacy proved to be problematic on set, Every single one of them was fitted with a small lithium battery that powered the circuitry for the embedded light strips, but each battery only lasted 12 minutes. In order to maximize the output, the light strips had to be switched on right before each take 
and turned off immediately afterwards. The circuitries inside the suits were also very fragile, so the actors could not simply sit between takes but had to recline against upright boards. And again, the wardrobe budget was $13 million for Tron Legacy. One custom suit alone for the racers cost $60,000 just to make one of those suits, which is crazy. At the time, it was the most expensive film ever made by a first-time director with a production budget of $170 million. And, I mean, there's so many cool things to talk about with this film. But first, for a first-time director, he still had a lot of experience in narrative storytelling. So Joseph Kaczynski began his career as an architect, most notably with 3D modeling and animation and computer imaging. And so he brought that into the world of commercials and music videos. So he actually did uh, quite an uh, impressive number of ads, whether it be commercials for brands, products, fashion, or music videos and incredible 3D imaging and CGI work that he was doing primarily with himself and his team. And he was doing like big time commercial spots using this incredible software and skills he has with CGI imagery. And that's what got him the meeting with the head of Disney. And the head of Disney was like, they, they were looking for someone who was well-versed in CGI imaging, imaging and computer computer graphics and also not just doing that but doing it in a storytelling capacity which he had been doing early in his career and so it seemed like a no-brainer for them to hire him and he had never done a film before but I'm sure he was looking to doing something and now he's just only done films since then but he there's he had the meeting with head of Disney and the head of Disney was like, what do you think? How would you imagine this world to be? Because he was like the guy for commercials for CGI. You know, he was he was killing it. So they were like, they brought him in to see what he thought, and he had an idea. But he said, uh, he basically was like, I can't just like tell it to you. Uh, let me show you. So give me some money and I'll put something together. So uh, the head of Disney lent him some money. I'm guessing like maybe two to five million dollars. And Joseph Kaczynski and his team, they created basically like a little two, two and a half minute teaser of a light cycle battle uh, from how he envisioned the grid to look like with uh, modern technology. And they showed this, Disney showed this at Co Comic-Con 2008 because they loved it and they were so impressed. And it didn't have anything really to do with the story so much, but it was just like a proof of concept. And it was a way to get fans excited to let them know that we're serious about making a Tron sequel and this is what we're expecting. I remember seeing I remember seeing the trailer online like so many years ago because it was an uproarious event at Comic-Con. It blew people's minds who were fans of Tron. And it was like a surprise thing, the scissor reel tease that they made and and uh it looks very similar um and oftentimes shot for shot some of the sequences that he ended up using for Tron Legacy. So, once that scissor reel showcased what his vision was and that he could do it, I think it was a no-brainer for the head of Disney to be like, okay, you're the guy, let's do it. That's really similar to how in 2007, Neil Blomkamp, who obviously is the director and writer of District 9, got a small budget to make a short film called Halo Landfall, which was a little mini short about Halo and Master Chief in a battle from the game, based on the game, to make a potential movie. And I thought that movie was going to get made. I thought that short was so cool. But I've, I've kind of missed when filmmakers, studios just take chances on filmmakers. It's like, let's see what you got for like a couple million. Yeah. Let's see your vision. But now it just seems like they don't even want to waste their time or money on doing something like that for potential well, stories. Yeah, the Blomkamp one is interesting because it was Peter Jackson who ended up funding that project for him because he had seen his District 9 short which uh, Blomkamp made with Shelto Copley, his co-worker at the time. They were just working in an office. 
And Charlotte Coldplay was actually his manager in the office. And he's the lead in District yeah, 9. Yeah, lead in District 9. So they made this short film for District 9. It's like an like eight-minute short. Um, there's some incredible CGI because Blumkamp, like Kosinski, was such was so adept at using CGI on his own and just like a stunning artist with this with the technology. Did they even get any work done at the office? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. I know Charlotte complained and, and complaining because he's a, he's an actor, well well uh, respected actor now, and it's a very similar trajectory to Kosinski and how. You know, working on his own and, and being uh, really incredible at using this new technology really put his foot in the door, uh, just like Gareth Evans with Monsters eventually getting Kong and, and Godzilla vs. Kong. So it, it, the technology sometimes moves so fast that it, it moves so fast and then there are some people like these young filmmakers like Kaczynski, like Evans, or Gareth Edwards, I mean, and then, and then like Blumkamp who uh, they're just – they have a knack for the technology and that puts them over other young up and coming filmmakers because they can do something that previously only a movie studio could do, but they can do it on their, in their own, on their own computer, which is something that's never really been possible before to make it such an incredible spectacle as like a small piece of film and like Kuzinski, in like Kuzinski starting out with the shorts and then eventually commercials and then leading into one of the most visually stunning films of that year. And, I mean, visual stunning, yes, it is. And it still holds up today, like Anthony said, minus the de-aging on Jeff Bridges' oh face for young Kevin Flynn in the flashback opening as well as Clue for the rest of the film. Now, when this came out, I thought it was really incredible, and it's, it's held up really well. However, like Eddie said earlier, we saw this at the New Beverly Cinema in Hollywood last week at a midnight screening. It was packed, and this movie has a cult following for a reason, and everyone was so excited, and it was Everyone was in line. It was huge. But uh, as soon as the young, in the opening, yeah. Kevin Flynn turned to camera when he's leaving the house after he has, like, he says goodnight to Sam and everything. He turns to the camera and he says, we're always on the same team, right? Everyone laughed. <laughs> it was Everyone cringe. laughed. It did not look that great. did not hold up that well. Again, we're seeing it on a big screen. I'm sure it looks a little better on a TV in your home. I, I, I'm, But it just didn't hold up. It didn't look real at all anymore. But yeah. at the time, it's, it looked I really remember great. it looking good when I first saw it. And basically, yeah. well, I think there were a lot of good decisions made in this film, vis- visual effects-wise and c- cinematography-wise. Kaczynski got Claudio Miranda to shoot this film, and he had just done... The Curious Case of Benjamin Button back in 2008 that for looks, David the Fincher. The de-aging in that looks great. So they used similar de-aging technology as they did for Brad Pitt on that film, but I guess there just wasn't as good. Here's the thing. With with Benjamin Button, they were aging him most of the time. So and the that, de-aging, it was yeah. soft lighting and everything. Yeah, yeah. De-aging... All you have to do with Brad is because he had, in 08, he still looked so young. Yeah. Just get rid of some of his blemishes and stuff. They didn't really have to recreate a new face. And when he's a teen, he's like kind of silhouetted by light. Yeah, exactly. And and I suppose since it was really, although that is an effects-heavy film. Benjamin Button is very effects-heavy. I think that's so, one of the reasons why he got Claudio on But it is interesting that, I mean, it looks way better than Tron Legacies. But here's the thing with the de-aging. I think that using Clue was a good idea for a villain because I understand it, it works great as a metaphor as a, as a reflection of Kevin Flynn and his flaws and his flawed ideology back then. I, I do, however, think that they went too young with the de-aging. Now, it could have worked better. I understand the concept, and it was like, oh, man, this looks so cool, but it really does not look good on at, at this modern era. Like, looking back on it, it is noticeable. Even for the rest of the film, it's like, it's just, it looks like it's a video game. What, what I think would have worked better for Clue is... It didn't have to be 35-year-old Jeff Bridges. 
it could have been 50-year-old Jeff Bridges. So he could have been working on the grid for a couple of decades after the first film. And it would, it would still work with the timeline of Ke- of Sam's age where, you know, so when he when when Jeff Bridges creates Clue, he could have been 50, had some uh, more of a dark brown hair. If they just darkened his hair and his beard, you know, no white or anything, just a little bit. And just gotten rid of some blemishes with CGI. You didn't really have to de-age his face that much. You know, the color of someone's hair can really make them look younger and really make them look older. I mean, look at a Rogaine commercial. <laughs> and so if they had just done that, and then you have like a 65-year-old Kevin Flynn, who is the present-day Jeff Bridges, the white hair, white beard, they'll look 15 years different, and it will look perfect and seamless. And so I think they got a little too ahead of themselves going so young with Bridges. I think they could have gone with, you know, a younger Bridges, but 10 to 15 years younger. It didn't have to be 30 years younger, and it still worked with the story of him getting locked in the grid when Sam when, when Sam was a kid, and Sam being a kid would still match up with Jeff Bridges being 50 because when Sam's an adult with Garrett Hetland in this film, Jeff Bridges is about 65, 66, so it still would it would have worked with the timeline and it wouldn't have it, it would have just looked looked seamless for the entire film. Or I mean most people haven't seen Tron in 1982 when yes, they went to go see yeah. this movie. So, th- even story-wise, you don't have to explain it. Just make him, like, 50. Yeah. Make, exactly. Say, make yeah. Kevin Flynn, like, 50 years old in the flashback. Like, no one cares. I think people would have totally accepted yeah, it. Yeah. Just de-age him a little bit. Clean him up a little bit. He he looked great when he was 50 years old. He still does. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that you're right. They got a little ahead of themselves. Let's make him look like he's 35. Make him look like he's 50. He probably would have been yeah. a lot easier and held up a lot better. And it still would have worked with the story where it could have been like him and Clue were working on the grid for years. But even you don't yeah. even need to do that. People yeah. have been like, oh, yeah, it's a younger version of him. It's yeah. fine. Like, that's because this is like old Hollywood. Just have yeah. the same actor. Exactly. 20 years younger. Like, no one cares. Yes. No one, people accept it. And I'm telling you, just darkening his hair and beard would have worked wonders with de aging. That would have. Cleaning it up. With yeah. like airbrushing, basically. yeah, that would have been that would have helped out so much, and it would have helped the film on rewatches. True, because it is in a lot of ways the face of Clue is quite distracting, um, because there's just like in the empty, emotionless, animated version of the face. You know what I mean? And then when you see his teeth, it's like oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> but but for the rest of the film, the visual effects are stunning. And you, you accept Clue going yeah, through you the accept re- it, for yeah. the rest of the film. You accept it eventually, even during that crazy speech at the end. It's like, yeah, I get it, but it, it works eventually. But this movie overall visual effects are astounding. And Claudio Miranda, incredible cinematographer, now him and Joseph Kaczynski, they made every film together. He was on Oblivion, Top Gun Maverick, obviously. So I think, And he's also an Oscar winner. He won an Oscar for Best Cinematography for Life of Pi, Ang Lee's film in 2012. So just a really talented cinematographer getting behind the camera for his films, especially this. Also, some more pros besides the visual effects real quick. I think this movie is just so goddamn cool. It's one of the coolest movies of the century, in my opinion. It's so fun. And I, I think the musical score by Daft Punk really is an all-timer. It's one of my, my most listened to ever since this movie came out. I know the tracks by heart. I know the opening like by heart of Jeff Bridges' Overture. The grid. I, I love like it we so heard much. In the opening episode. Something about this score. It's just bumping so well. And they have a great cameo in the film as well. They're the DJs in in that club. But I think the music is so important to this movie and it really elevates it to a different level. Plus, Rinsler, one of my favorite kind of anti-hero antagonists in recent memory. I think he's such a badass character. Obviously, Rinsler is a reprogrammed Tron by Clue. 
And then also another great pro. It's a really solid father and son story. You know, Hollywood, the last five, ten years, has moved away from father and son stories. Of course, there are some. I think Minari is a good example of a father-son story. There are a few outliers for sure. But now, generally, we don't really get father and son stories very often in Hollywood, especially in big-budget films. When was the last time you saw, like, a really good father-son story in, like, a big picture? Off the top of my head, in a big picture. Right now, can't really think about it. It's generally um, fathers and daughters now, or, or mothers and daughters. But fathers and sons. Yeah, where are, are the where are the boys at? Where for the, main where the young sto- boys for at? main characters in the big blockbuster, they don't really happen anymore. Yeah, the boys are generally bullies. The boys now. are just gone. <laughs> they're just they're phasing the boys out. They're the bullies of the uh, of the kid now. And it's tough for so many people who love movies and grew up watching films like this. We. Father and son stories we connect to obviously very much. I connect to mother and daughter stories. Yeah, I would as well. say um, How to Train Your Dragon is the, is the most recent good version. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. a, it's animated. Yeah, I'm talking in live action. When was like yeah. the last great live, live action, action like know. father son story big blockbuster? No idea, man. It's always it's it, they've it's changed. They they phased it out of Hollywood. It's obvious you can't deny it. It happens here and there for sure. But we used to get a lot more of them, and oh, yeah. I used to connect to those movies really well. And I, I love a good father-son story. Same, same. But speaking of the soundtrack, obviously Daft Punk were a famous duo for many years, and Krasinski was actually a fan of them, and so he reached out to them, and they actually, ironically, were huge fans of the original Tron. So they were interested in signing on, but they wanted to make sure that the people making it were invested in you know honoring the original film, so they had a great meeting. They also... Uh, met with Hans Zimmer a couple of times, and he basically gave them advice for scoring for their first picture. And obviously, you can get some semblances of Hans's electronic influences on this score. And also, there's a there's a third collaborator in this score that doesn't get any recognition at all, and that's Joseph Trapanese. And he's been doing a lot of films lately, but uh, this was his first collaboration on a film. He was a he's a composer, a duck, conductor, and arranger for orchestras and scores. Uh, he's actually building himself a good repertoire of film of a filmography lately since this. He also did the animated Tron movie, which came out after this live-action film. Now And he, the raid. And the raid. And now jo- Joseph Trapanese, he served as the orchestral arranger and the, the arranger and the orchestrator. So um, he was paramount to the orchestral pieces of this film. Uh, my guess, I couldn't exactly find the process, but my guess is that uh, Daft Punk would come up with the, the the notes and melodies and themes that they wanted to be orchestral. And basically what Tra- Trapanese did as an orchestrator and arranger, you're putting that music onto paper and you're also working with the orchestra. He's selecting, you know, who, who, what instruments are we going to have? How many instruments of each, um, of each kind of instrument? How many players of each um, instrument are going to be there? How big is the orchestra going to be? And also there's so many complexities to conducting and arranging that uh, Daft Punk couldn't do because they're not classically trained musicians. You know what I mean? They're they're great musicians, but it's a completely different beast. So Japanese was really instrumental, no pun intended, <laughs> in this score really working. And uh, I, I think I remember him actually being co-credited maybe early early days of the film's release, um, but they've he's not credited at all anymore. But he was paramount to the score and ending up working and being completed and actually done with the orchestra. That's so cool. Thanks for getting his recognition in there. I, I, think lo- I love him. He's, he's a really good composer. Awesome. He's a very good composer. There are plenty of cons to this film, though. And obviously, we've been talking about the de-aging of Jeff Bridges doesn't hold up so well. 
overall, I think the plot is really solid. You know, Sam Flynn, he's kind of like this bad boy. Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne type who kind of just like turned to extreme behaviors as a way of rebelling against his duties to his father in a lot of ways of taking control of Encom, which he refuses to do because he has he's the largest shareholder. He could take control of Encom, but he doesn't want to. And he's still pissed off about who he thinks what he thinks happened with his father. Either he's dead or he abandoned him or he's both. He's probably dead in Costa Rica. He feels like his father abandoned him. But then he accidentally gets sucked into the grid in the office, the secret office that Kevin had under the arcade at Flynn's. And then basically he is on the grid, tries to survive, then has to escape after discovering his father. However, Clue tricked him into going to the grid by sending him that anonymous page, thinking that Kevin would assume, Sam would assume it was from his father. And now since he is there, the portal of the grid is opened for eight hours and Clue's plan is to enter the portal with an entire army, and he can only do it by using Kevin Flynn's identity disc, which is why he brought Sam there to lure Kevin out of his exile to get his disc to then enter the real world and take over the real world. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I also think it's a good uh, a good plot overall, condensed like that. But just getting there is it doesn't quite work most of the time. And I also think that it was a mistake to not reveal the true stakes of what Clue's intention were, intentions were until the last 20 minutes of the film because it's not until 20 minutes into the movie we realize that he has an army prepared to go into the real world. And that's, 20 minutes left in the yeah, movie. Yeah, 20 minutes left in the movie. And it's, it's a great, uh, great conflict, and it really sets up the stakes. But you don't realize, you don't learn this until after two hours. So I think that not understanding what the real conflict is because – for the majority of the film, the conflict is Kev, uh, it's just Sam just getting out. You know what I mean? Yeah, they and don't. Yeah, and so they're really, the, that's it. Yeah, like that's Sam it. getting out and his father staying. And then with twenty minutes left, you're like, oh shit! There's a fucking army about to enter the real world. That's really great. But I wish uh, we could have known about that sooner because it didn't add. It didn't add that sus- that the suspense, the suspense, and um the the anxiety and the conflict that we need for the story to be propelled forward and so if we had learned that pretty early on maybe at the end of the at the start of the second act that really would would have added a lot of urgency to the story i think yeah i agree for sure to know what the stakes were for this event going forward also i think just the pacing in general it starts fine i think the pacing solid until about halfway through then it really slows itself down immensely after sam finds kevin basically he's saved by cora but then the the second or they third dinner act, yeah they have this like awkward <laughs> long dinner the dinner's fine sitting by the fireplace it was I'm, it's like 10 minutes of just exposition but it's the pacing for me is really you know after that when they're making a run for the portal and it really slows down on the train because on that highway yeah. train have you ever, have you ever uh, run a freight train or jumped a freight train it's a cool se- sequence and obviously this train is a big reference 
to the original Tron movie. They have one of those sequences in it. And it really takes like, it feels like 30 minutes to get to like the next phase of this adventure where it's a way, like the story slows itself down so that Clue can catch up. And so that Clue can get his plans sent to the audience to let us know what's going on with his plans, his big speech, his big army reveal. They really slow it down to let Clue catch up to them in a lot of ways, I feel like. On, on purpose, the story does it. It's a tough story to write. You know, there's a lot to get in there. And then eventually, by the time they get to the portal, it feels like another hour. But really, it's not. It's just, yeah. it feels a lot slower than it is at this point in the movie. So, by the third act, with what's going on, there should be a sense of urgency. But when they're on the train, it's just, and they just like, they're just going over memories. And they're just chilling. Well, they're repairing Cora's arm. Yeah, but they're just chilling for and then, 15 minutes. And it's like... Kevin's going to knock on the sky, yeah. see what he can hear. Like I said, there's no urgency. Yeah. And it's like, there should be... At this point, there should be like a ticking clock. Like Chris Nolan... There, yeah, a ticking clock would have yeah. been great. Chris Nolan is so great at adding this ticking clock into his third acts where there is a time limit for the heroes to achieve their goal. And if they don't achieve that, it's fucked. And that ticking clock is running. And it, it gets the audience feeling that anxiety. But with this, with them just casually hanging out, it just takes it kind of sucks the life out of the uh, out of the film, and it gets rid of any sense of like need for any like it just it just takes it takes away the 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 pacing in in the it just loses its balance, and then it just kind of falls off this cliff, and it just like literally just stops. It kind of stalls. And that's not what you want for the third act. And I understand what they're doing. You know, they're building the connection between Sam and Cora, obviously, for what's going to happen in the climax once they get through the portal. Spoilers alerts, obviously. And Cora's now in the real world. And obviously, Sam and Kevin's watching and, like, I'm trying to create a connection between these two worlds. So you understand what's going on. But it just, there's too, I think there's too much going on in a ticking clock. A yeah. real ticking clock. There is technically a ticking clock, but it's the slowest clock in the world. It's mm -hmm. like... It's like maple. It's like syrup going uphill. This ticking clock. You're like, is there a clock? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, screenplay, pacing, exposition are some more cons. I also think that there could have been more Rinsler. I think Rinsler is the, the, my favorite character in this entire movie. I wish we got a little more of him. Also, it I says like two lines. I don't like <laughs> the user. <laughs> I fight for the user because he's such a huge part of the original. It's great that he's back. However, Tron is Rinsler for the majority of the film. And then also, I think it could have been a good emotional backdrop of him, his conflict with trying to defeat his own reprogramming to try to fight for the users again, mm -hmm. like he used to. And then kind of just the mystery ending of him falling into the sea of simulation, and that's what it's called. And then yeah. his red lights turn blue, meaning he's turned back on Setting as Tron, up, yeah. and then just we never see him again. Obviously, yeah. they're setting up a sequel here, but I think it would have been a lot better if Rinsler could have came back Disney on as Tron earlier. I think it would have been yeah, great. Yeah. More, more, more emotional. You didn't have to hire the same actor. With, yeah, you yeah. didn't have. Well, he, but he was still in it, yeah. and his de aging looked fine. It was only a little bit. Yeah. Uh, also, I think Kevin's a little too passive. I understand his concept in 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 philosophy of defeating Clue is the only way you can defeat Clue is by not playing his game. That's how you win. Yeah. I understand the concepts, but it turns Kevin too passive, and he has a bit of a Neo problem, like in Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions, where at the end of the Matrix, Neo is the one. He can change the, the program of the Matrix however he sees fit. He could technically 
move buildings, rewrite codes. He can do whatever he wants, but Matrix 2 and 3, the Wachowskis, the Matrix is my favorite movie of all time, but they turn him into Superman, that's it. Kind of underwhelming with what he was supposed to be capable of. Same thing with Kevin, he should be capable of Neo-level stuff. We really only get a little tease of it in that nightclub scene where he just like dims the lights and has some people like <laughs> he has the song. He has his own guards, I guess, <laughs> come in and, and defeat the, the black rebel, rebels. Yeah, yeah. De- defeat the black guard, and then who are basically the enforcers for Clue. And then we finally actually see some powers from Kevin Flynn, but not until the climax when he's pulling Clue away from the portal and creates a barrier between him and Cora and Sam. I wish we could have got more. Kevin fucking shit up being Kevin Flynn. I created this program. I've been here for 20 years. Yeah. I've mastered it. I created a 2001 Space Odyssey home for myself. <laughs> I can do anything. Yeah. And then we don't really get a glimpse of that until the end. I wish we could have got more of that. I absolutely agree. And there's another thing that I think was a, a really big missed opportunity that could have been really interesting was uh, pursuing a kind of religious theme in terms of Kevin and Sam in relation to this world on the grid because it, it, you got to think of it as like, it's like God and Jesus are on earth in a way. You know what I mean? If you're a religious person. Oh, yeah. And I think that would have been a really interesting way to explore the story of, you know, programs maybe worshiping them or there's a religion formed around them. So but think of it like there's a religion formed about, around their creator, around Kevin Flynn, and then the son of the creator arrives what would that do to the world? It's all, it is like that. Yeah. So this whole film, you can look at it as an allegory for Christianity and, re- and references to the Bible. So the programs themselves, not to cut you off, sorry. That's fine. Because um, I think it is you there. You seem like you got something to it say. It is there. So programs basically are created in the image of li- in likeness of the users yeah. of Kevin Flynn. It's just like Christianity and other religions, human beings are created in the image of their creator, their God. However... There's this interdimensional, this dimensional plane that is a barrier between the the created and the creators. Obviously, we can't access heaven and heaven. earth. Exactly, heaven and earth. There's a barrier between the grid and the real world. So that's an allegory right there. Programs dealt the existence of the users. So Clue, after he's taken over the grid in Tron City, he's convinced the programs that Kevin Flynn was a hack he was just a dictator. He's not He's not really our god. And also making them doubt the existence that users even exist because they kind of don't believe in users anymore until Rinsler sees the blood fall from Sam and then people find like, oh my god, did a user? Users are real? So kind of clueish convinced them that users don't exist because you can say that, like you said, Kevin Flynn can be looked at as god. Clue can be looked at as Satan, as the devil, as the fallen angel. So... We have also a purge of the ISOs. Now, the ISOs, you could look at as the religious worshipers or fanatics of Kevin Flynn. They were the miraculously miraculous digital beings that just sprang into fruition that no one created. They just appeared out of nowhere, out of thin air in the in the grid. But they basically you could look at as the worshipers in a, in a way to Kevin Flynn. And that's why Clue destroyed them because not only was his programming by Kevin told to del- – any imperfections but also the isos were not perfect they were flawed because they were basically organic beings you could say created from nowhere but you could say that they were the followers of kevin flynn so obviously satan had to destroy them now god and satan kevin and clue Clue. they are in 
a never-ending standoff on this plane, basically you could say for the souls of the programs, the souls of the ISOs. They're in a standoff, just like so many allegories, so many movies, books, stories about God and Satan, they're at a never-ending staff. Like, Constantine says that, like, they're in a never-ending war for the souls of mankind. Like, John Constantine says something like that in the movie. Also, we have the creator living amongst his created. Obviously, he's in exile. And then eventually sacrificing himself. However, it's a little different here where if you look at Sam as a Jesus character, obviously, in Christianity, God sent Jesus to Earth to sacrifice himself basically and die for the sins of humanity whereas here satan or clue tricks sam the son of god the jesus basically to come to the grid so it's a little different circumstance of why he's there and you don't really exactly know what his role would be since he was tricked by satan versus being sent by god if that makes sense so in a way the allegory of christianity is very much present in other religions in Tron Legacy the whole time. And plus, the rebellion of Satan was never an attempt, as it usually is believed, to overthrow God, but more it occurred because God ordered them to worship humanity, a lower life form, just like Kevin had Clue. Like, you have to worship the ISOs. They are the miracle, where Clue is like, fuck them. They are imperfect beings. I'm going to destroy them. So I think the allegories are there. I think they're there, but I'm just speaking of, like, the fact that it would have been interesting if there was, like, a religious group. I and think that's they there in, in previous stories of Tron, like the, the comic books and the cartoons and the uh-huh. features. I think that's there, but, like, I, not in this movie, obviously. But, yeah. Kevin, I mean, Clue stamped it all out. I think it would have been interesting, and it also could have pitted, um, you know, Clue against Kevin in a way where Kevin gets a, has a following that to go up against Clue in a way. On the grid, you know what I mean? So that's present, but just exposition. So he says that, Cora says that he did fight back against Clue, but, You're right, but yeah, every yeah. time he would go against Clue, he would lose, and Clue would just get bigger. So I yeah, think because yeah. there's a couple little animated, there's a couple animated features as well as comics and stories of Tron that progresses the lore since 1982's Tron, and this is kind of just like a continuation of all that. That's all in there. It's just not really in the movie. There's just ha- a couple lines here and there. They should have made that, this movie. That would have been cool <laughs> as hell. <laughs> yeah, it sounds I way agree. better. That would have been awesome. That should have been the war, movie. Yeah. The war of Kevin versus Clue. Yeah. And throw Sam in there as well. Sam Why not? And I think Sam, it could have been it could have been interesting if he was like a Jesus-type figure who ends up sacrificing himself at the end. And then he's brought back to life and resurrected as a program version of himself i think that that would have been fucking sick i bet that was an original idea but i feel like this is when disney was starting to like eliminate obvious thematic elements and motifs of religion in their films and obviously yeah i guess disappeared but that would have been imagine that would have been so cool if he died and it would have been really tragic but then he was resurrected as a program kevin a a program sam that would have been sick and then he could have been like all powerful and shit would have been neo and it could have been him versus clue in the finale Missed opportunity. That sounds like a great movie. Sounds fantastic. Sounds like an awesome sounds movie. Like, yeah, it's, and I, I think that um, speaking about all the, the uh, how you said that the war of the past was explained through the stories, I think that this film relies too heavily on exposition. Like I, people like to make fun of like Nolan for exposition, but like, dude, Nolan movies don't even come close to the amount of exposition on this film. And I mean, the first fifteen minutes of the movie is all exposition, and then we get that ex- huge sequence of exposition with. Um, with Kevin when he's talking to Sam in his home, 
We get exposition from Clue. We get more exposition on the on the uh, train. Uh, Zeus gives exposition. Like, is there's too much spoon feeding of the audience, of explaining things, of telling characters about other people, and tell telling Sam so much stuff. There's not enough action. There's not enough. Uh, not enough things are told through doing. Rather, you know what I mean. Which I think is end, ends up being stronger storytelling. There's just way too many scenes of a character explaining things to Sam, and I know that happens a lot in the Matrix. But in the Matrix, it never feels like it's too much, and it always feels balanced with action. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, or you know, interesting and, concepts yeah, and sequences. Yeah, interesting you know? concepts. Um, but so take for example, like. Uh, Neo's rebirth in the real world that's all done and it's not like spoon fed to us I mean there's just too much exposition I think in this film especially near like the especially in the third act of the film where it really should just be all like all the events led up to this third act which should just be propulsive and very interesting and lacking in more stories being told by other characters. Yeah, I think a, a war would have been such a great third act versus just a race to a door in a lot of ways, which is fine. I mean, you could argue that The Matrix is a race to the door at the end as well, to the room. It is, but it's fucking awesome. It's fucking sick. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, that's interesting you say that the, the it, it relates to the pacing because the first hour has plenty of action. I mean, it opens up For with sure. a lot of action after the flashback. We get... You know, the the older Hutter, Sam Flynn now. <laughs> he's so you're a, saying the kid was he's hot? He's just like, no, he's older now. You said older and Hutter. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Canceled. What, what was that thing? you Like I said something unsavory like in person last week. And Anthony, the best reference I've ever heard in my life from anyone in person. He did a Wolf of Wall Street reference where Jordan's trying to bribe the FBI agents on the yacht. Anthony comes to me, he's like, he steps closer to me gently. He's like, can you say that again? Exactly like you said it. <laughs> it was something cancelable. Exactly like that. <laughs> and so I've never done that reference before. And so good. Like right when you said it, it clicked in my head. And I was, I, I even did like Kyle Shannon. I, I acted exactly like him physically. Just say it exa- exactly, exactly like, like that. <laughs> it was so goddamn funny. It was the best reference, I, movie reference I've ever heard in my life. It was <laughs> nailed it, man. <laughs> but what was I saying before I got to that? How hot he was. Okay. <laughs> no, so he's. I like and how Garrett Hedlund's awesome. He's a great actor. Yeah. He, I think that I love him. I think he has so much potential as a leading mm-hmm. man. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed it didn't really fully work out for him since this movie because I think he has it for me. Yeah, right now his only major role is he's on that Sylvester Stallone show. Um, Not the reality show. No, the, the gangster, the <laughs> no, gangster kidding. show. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he plays a, a his uh, a, a recurring role. He's he's also been in a couple of movies here and there. A couple of Coen Brothers yeah, movies. But yeah, but he hasn't. He 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 didn't work out as a leading man. I think it's because this movie wasn't a huge hit. It was a bo- That's probably yeah, it was why. Bomb. It was just like a very lukewarm box office for its budget. But I think he's solid as Sam Flynn, and I I like Sam Flynn as a character a lot. I, I like the rebellious nature of him and in, in the like the bad boy antics of the annual prank on Encom, the company that he has a large share of that obviously at the end of Tron in 1982, if you've never seen it, I'm going to spoil the ending of it, Kevin Flynn gets control of the company as CEO after it's revealed that Edward Dellinger, who stole his games that he was developing at night at Encom, took his credit but basically was proven to be a liar and basically cheated Kevin Flynn and Kevin Flynn gets CEO of Encom, then obviously he disappears. Now, 
Sam Flynn is still suffering from the loss of his father. Like I said, he thinks he either abandoned him or died, or probably both. He's like, he's probably dead in Costa Rica right now. And instead of taking control of NCOM, which is his birthright, he just spends his allowance. He's very much, like you said, Bruce Wayne in a lot of ways without fighting crime. And he takes to extreme sports, doing crazy things, annual pranks at NCOM. There's a, there's a past story of at NCOM, he did a prank where he like parachuted down into one of their conferences and did something crazy. So this is like what he does with his free time. He's very immature right now because of his father's disappearance. And it's really not until he connects with his father again that he gets motivated. And by the end of the film, it's taking control of NCOM again, which is a great ending, I think. But the character, I think, is solid. And... He's not so much different from Kevin Flynn because Kevin himself in the past in Tron himself was like a bit of a B&E breaking and entering guy, kind of hacking the system sort of personality. They just took it to an extreme, I think, with Sam. Yeah, I agree. And although he does make the decision halfway through the film to go to get out, go to the portal on his own and find Zeus, which is great because it's the your lead character being active. But I th- I do think that the right so my biggest problem with the film is the writing and it's the screenplay. Otherwise it's it, it could have that's what I think it was lacking in potential. And he kinda does become a bit of a passive character where he's he's brought to location to location to location. I think it would have been much more interesting if Sam made the decision to enter the grid. If he knew what the light laser was and he's like, fuck it, I'm going in. Rather than the laser, rather than him being put into it by accident, um, it's not. A, it wasn't an active choice. He's just like playing around on the computer, accidentally gets put put into the grid. I think it would have been like, a, it would have made him much more interesting and made him an active character, because the, he, he's accidentally put in there. Then he's picked up, and then he's go, he goes through the gladiator games, which is great. I love the sequence, and then he's picked up by Cora, and then we get the uh, him and uh, Sam, him and Sam, him and Kevin uniting. Um, and obviously he makes some decisions in the third act, but I think half the time he's a little too passive uh, for a lead act for a lead character, and it kind of hinders him in his development. And yeah, yeah. he he's he could have been much more exciting. Maybe if he was seeking out the grid on purpose, trying to find his father. Not, I like that. Versus Alan's the only one who believes that his father's still around. Like Alan, you're acting like I'm gonna find him there, sitting there working, like he's hasn't left the job. And I was like, wouldn't that be something? Maybe if Sam was like more active and like, I'm going to find my father. He's out there somewhere. I got to find the grid. I got to figure out how to access it. And then he yeah. eventually finds the secret door. But I think I think it still works. I, still, I think it still works fine with the, the angst of the, feel, the feeling of abandonment of his father, not understanding why he left him if he did leave him and disappeared. Because, I mean, if I was Sam, I'd probably feel like that for a while too. But also, you know, maybe I would also realize like, there's no way my father would just abandon me. There's got to be a reason why he's yeah. gone. You can compare it to The Matrix because The Matrix has a similar thing of someone entering a computer program or he thinks he he really is exiting it, but he thinks he's entering it. You know what I mean? At first, Neo. So the real world is yeah. the program. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in his, he, he, he's entering something. He, but the thing is, he's given the hint, a, a couple of hints. He gets the call from Morpheus. He gets the text on his computer. He follows the White Rabbit. He talks to Trinity. Um, ultimately, he makes the decision to find out what the matrix is they could have done something very similar with with sam here of breadcrumbs and hints of the grid and treat the grid make it like neo to the matrix like sam to the grid it could have been much more interesting where he's given hints and he's given little things here and there and ultimately he has to make the decision to enter this new world 
Um, I think it's a little too accidental and happenstance. And I think that's ultimately uh, the wrong decision for the character. It he, he is a very cool character, you know, riding a motorcycle and causing mayhem and just being, being really cool. Super he's cool. a cool guy, <laughs> but he's not active enough for me to really love as much as I could have. But imagine that if he was learning things and he's been investigating it. Neo's been he's heard about the Matrix. He's he's been questioning something, um, and he's given the opportunity to say yes or no, and he says yes. And so I think Sam could have. I think it would have worked better if he was given an opportunity. Okay, the grid's real. Do you want to take the chance and enter it? I think that would have been a lot more fun. I like that fun. because he knows it's real. Yeah. His father's been telling talking, him about it for years. Told him about it every yeah. every time he tucked him into bed. Telling him about the grid. He's kinda, been giving it, yeah. speeches about it. That it, makes sense. It kind of seems a little like weird that he immediately, like without question, is like my dad ran off. Like, you know, he's, he's been telling you that he's been working on the grid, inside the grid. Like maybe he's stuck in there. Yeah, it's, I think it seems cause like because he's, he's a smart kid. He's yeah. precocious. He was top of his class. He was top of his class at Caltech before he dropped out. So he's tech savvy. He's probably a genius like his father too it seems like an obvious thing like oh he must be stuck there somehow yeah i mean he's been inside of this computer like eight hours a day every day like maybe he's stuck where's he been going every night <laughs> i wonder <laughs> so i i think that um it would have been a much stronger first act if it, if they kind of borrowed a little bit more from the matrix i think so too because it borrows too much from tron the original where like accidentally, accidentally getting yeah, stuck exactly. in, inside the tron yeah in the grid the whole time it's better for tron because it is fish out of water yeah and, yeah and the first every, time. it's all surprising shocking i think it works in the original film but the audience already knows what it is so we don't need to have the mystery again but i will give disney this is probably one of their better definitely one of their better if not best remakes? legacy oh, sequel, sequel yeah. remake <laughs> reboot remake whatever you want to call it it's a legacy sequel basically yeah, yeah. but they haven't really nailed it like this much since then because i still even though we're kind of like being pretty critical of it it's because i think we love it so much and it has i think it's because this movie has so much potential had so much potential to be a generational almost like matrix level movie not quite there because it's so rare to be a movie like that but like it has the makings of a really it had some juice man really special yeah. science fiction film it has it all there but how about let's run to our intermission and we'll come back and talk more about Tron Legacy let's do it now before we continue the very best way to to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to leave a five star review on either Spotify or Apple aka iTunes now Apple gives you the ability to leave a five star written review as well which we love to read those off I'll read one off in about a minute or so but both platforms give you the ability to leave us a five-star review. We're at like over 1,700 on both platforms, so get those numbers up for us. We'd love to hit 2,000 by the end of the year. The second best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. This is a membership program. We have five different tiers of financial support for the show, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every single one of these tiers gets you awesome perks like video messages. You get custom, you get access to two weekly bonus episodes every single tier. So the weekly chat, which is exclusively on Patreon only, posts every Wednesday for every single patron. Also, an additional bonus episode of the show posts every Friday or Thursday for every patron access as well. So every patron has access to two episodes extra a week of Raiders of Lost podcast. I mean, come on. That's Quite the fuck. Less than a cup of coffee. Less than a cup of coffee. Cup of coffee. That ten dollar tier gets you access to our Discord 
The $25 tier gets you a custom episode. $100 is the craziest package of all time. You get so many cool perks like free merch, but also you get to a private watch party. Whatever movie you want to watch with us, we'll watch it. It'll be great, as well as coming on the show after three months for a fun guest segment, pop you in for the intermission, have a, have a good chat. It's always fun. So thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You mean the world to us, as well as everyone else. You all mean the world to us, too. This episode is also sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They have a huge selection, pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and backlighting. They also just did a movie poster giveaway contest for us last week. Congratulations to the winner of that free movie poster. We're going to do another contest next week, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, go to movieposters.com for all of your poster needs. And don't forget to use our promo code Raiders10 for 10% off, off to 10% off your order today. 10% off. It's extra off. It's super off. Let's move on into our intermission now. And begin with the movie quote competition. Now this is, I think you'll get this pretty easy, but give everyone a moment. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet. Because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That would be a cut uh cut uh from the prestige. <laughs> yes, sir. You have to bring it back. <laughs> I saw you on a slab. <laughs> I lied. It was agony. <laughs> it was like going home. <laughs> All right, here's my quotes. Two people. If I told you don't think about the color red, what would you think about? Sex. Don't think about the color. Might be a tough one. I'll say it. If, you, if I told you don't think about the color red, what would you think about? Sex. I don't know. 40 Days and 40 Nights with uh, Josh Hartnett. Haven't seen that one in a while. Yeah. Brought it back to the that, 2000s. That feather scene is hot. <laughs> What's the feather scene? Where um, he's obviously celibate for 40 celibate, days. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, he, he's got a crush on that girl. And they're try, they're being intimate without actually physically touching each other. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so they have like yeah. a feather that they're just like, oh. Shannon Salsman feels so good, that feather. I, I, <laughs> man. <laughs> All right, guess this movie release year. Crazy Heart. 2007. 2009. Oh, damn. Oscar win. It's a great role. Jeff Bridges is great. Great right. great singer and guitarist. Mm-hmm. All right, guess this movie release year. Pearl Harbor. 2002. 2001. Close. Close, close. Oh, also, Crazy Art was Scott Cooper's first movie. Was it his first? Yeah, it was his oh, debut. It's a great debut. Yeah. He Jeff Bridges likes working with first-time directors. I know, apparently. Yeah. All right, movie pop quiz time. Yeah, and I believe True Grit was the Coen Brothers' first movie. <laughs> <laughs> movie pop quiz time. In 2006, Joseph Kaczynski made an ad for a famous action-adventure video game. What was the game franchise? Gears of War, baby. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Gears of War. Hell or a- High Water was another debut. Oh, Jeff it? Bridges. Yeah. That's awesome. Tyler uh, Sheridan, his first movie. Oh. As a director. 
Yeah. Or not, maybe he not. fucking loves first time directors. <laughs> I bet I can find a huge list of them. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> Gears of War. Gears of, yeah. Something like that. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. He made the, uh, yeah, it was a famous ad. It uh, had the song Mad World. Yeah, yeah. It was um, for Xbox Mad 360. Mad World. Yeah. yeah. Dun, 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 that was the big dun, dun, one, I think, for him, for his career. All right. What was Josh Hartness' first ever role? His first ever role. Wow, first ever role? There's actually, uh, surprisingly for your first role, it's fucking big time, man. I can't believe this. It's his first ever job as an actor. It was. It's not even like his IMDb has him as like guest spots and TV shows and commercials. Like this is his first credit as it's an actor. It's not the faculty. No. But the faculty. It was not long after this. He he had a huge early five years of his career. Good question. I don't know. What was it? Halloween H two O. Oh shit! No, that was his first movie. That was his first job as an actor. Wow, it's crazy. Like that's your first credit. That's insane. It's a good credit. Do we have any Raider Raiders? Actually, I got a- another name suggestion from somebody. Oh, let's hear for that. So, um, they tweeted us. Let me pull it up real quick. They said, "I love Raider Haters, but can we? What about? Okay, this is from from Film Bro Twenty Five. Raider Haters is a classic." But what if you call them haters of the lost podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. Haters we, of the lost podcast. We can podcast. do both. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, we just recorded yesterday. I thought I had one today. I thought I screenshotted one. Well, I got. I have a couple um unsubscribes. So we actually just got threads. I think oh, yeah. everyone else got it too. And we got a bunch of people just writing uh, unsubscribe. On comments, <laughs> like I wrote, like, "Hey, Threads, we're a movie TV podcast. Find us on every platform." Blah 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 blah. And then William Henry Gleave wrote, "Unsubscribed." <laughs> <laughs> I found them. I accidentally deleted them earlier today. How could you? I said accidentally. Jeez, Louise, man. Okay, ready? These are actually pretty good. These are great. Who's Louise? Shut up. All right, Curtis Henry wrote. Um, because <laughs> we talked about Clinton, you said he was ninety. You said he was ninety-two years old in the movie news, and then Curtis Henry sent us a screenshot of just Google search of Clint Eastwood. It said ninety-three years old. He wrote ninety-two question mark <laughs> unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do your research, did you? You don't know anything. <laughs> Eric Rems wrote. I just listened to. Letterbox recap, humming the Pink Panther to introduce Jaws, unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> must have sounded like that. It didn't sound like Pink Panther, I think. Yeah. Your, to- your tune humming isn't always on. on- I'm, I'm, I'm a tone deaf human being, so. <laughs> like when you did the succession one, I'm like, what are you doing over there? <laughs> In my head it sounds fine, but I don't, I don't think it sounds fine when other people hear it. It doesn't. <laughs> Next up, NR Rock wrote in our succession episode, no mention of the funniest character in the show, Carl, unsubscribed. <laughs> uh, we didn't even talk about Carl. or We barely touched on Frank, too. That's it. There's so many to talk about. We managed to make a two-hour episode out of that, which is wild. Yeah. Wild, one. wild stallions. <laughs> All right, a uh, couple of great five star reviews. Here's one from the silly boy on Apple. And again, to leave a review on Apple, all you need is an email address, even if you don't use iTunes. I love these guys. Anyway, I found these guys doing 2020 during 2020, but didn't start listening all the time until last year. But I love how much they have such a passion and knowledge for film. It makes me love it any even more. 
The ways that they talk about film has taught me how to love film more. Aw, that's great. P.S. My sister laughs at me because I do you guys about random crap. The ways you care about your fans is amazing. Aw, appreciate you, pal. Thank you, silly boy. We appreciate the five-star review. We really appreciate you tuning in. And you know what? Hey, we appreciate it, even if your sister laughs at you. All sisters laugh at their brothers, so it's okay. We don't have any sisters, though, so we wouldn't know. I'm, I'm guessing they do at some <laughs> point. They have to. Um, my streaming recommendation for this week is, for this episode, is a movie that we're actually going to go see in theaters tomorrow uh, at the New Beverly Cinema on 35mm film. Minority Reports. It's on Hulu, if you got that, or rented. It's just an awesome, still relevant science fiction adventure mystery film from Steven Spielberg starring Tom Cruise. Awesome Goats. Cast. Goats just, doing goat it's things. It's so good. It still holds up, man. Yeah, it's based on a Philip K. Dick uh, short story. Cannot wait to see it in theaters. I Because we, we saw it when we were like 14 in theaters, but since then haven't. That was in 2002. Was it that old? 2002, so we were 11 yeah, and 12. That movie's over 20 years old, man. 20, what's that? 23 years old. Wait, no. 21 years old. Yeah, 21. There you go. There you go. Maths. Maths. Math is hard. My recommendation for this week, for this episode... Is Thief, Michael Mann's incredible debut, speaking of debuts, and it's available on Amazon Prime right now, starring James Caan, and it's one of the most incredible crime films of all time. It's really set the stage for Michael Mann as one of the most remarkable American filmmakers in history. If you haven't seen it, get on that ASAP. Thief Freaking on Amazon Prime. awesome. Oh, yeah. Freaking awesome movie. Freaking. Freaking. Now, let's freaking get back into Tron Legacy. I want to talk about some great things, all right? We've been a little critical. We've been bashing it. We've been tearing it apart. You tear my heart apart, Lisa. Lisa you tear, tear me apart. But it's because this movie has the juice, man. It's there. It's got a cult following. And I fucking love this movie still. And I think it has some of my favorite action sequences I've seen in Salt. The light cycle fight is fucking great. The entire arena is great. And I think they do a good job getting the audience ready to accept Sam as a great athlete and just good at doing extreme things because he jumps off a goddamn building, parachutes, he rides a motorcycle off a ramp on a highway. So we we get great exposition of him being just great at doing wild stuff. You have to have that setup for sure. So finally, he's a great athlete. He's brave. He's an adrenaline junkie, which you need to survive in the arena. And it sets us up to accept him for... They should have had a Frisbee scene, though. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a beach Frisbee scene. <laughs> What's that game called that you used to play? Fris- Ultimate Frisbee? Ult- yeah, him playing Ultimate with <laughs> a bunch of other dudes <laughs> wearing Santa Monica t-shirts. That would have been great. Then it could be like, okay, I accept this guy kicking ass at disc. <laughs> because you need to accept that he can do these things. And they do a solid job letting us know that he can because... Even though he's a fish out of water, he's never done anything like this before. He's played the video games of disc battle and, and light cycle video games. But now to be put in the arena, it's such a cool couple, like 10 minutes of him getting t- picked, picked up by the ship, getting put into the armory, getting armored up. It's pretty funny. Uh, it's got a zipper when the, the girls are like lighting his clothes on fire to, un, to tear they're him apart. They're not girls, they're programs. Program. The Jesus female programs. <laughs> 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 gets his identity disc and he's going into the arena he's going into this gladiatorial battle I wish there was another sequence of this because I thought it was so cool and so basically the first sequences he's doing is he's in the disc battle 
And he's going against an action figure of his, a person, uh, a fighter in the Tron game. And I got a three-inch version of you on my bureau in my room. That's crazy. And Sam, Sam's pretty good. He outsmarts his first opponents. And then the second opponent, he also outsmarts, but also I'm escaping. I'm getting out of here. He, he breaks the glass, falls through. Even though, so now he's like two rounds in, but then he accidentally stumbles upon the final round against Rinsler. And this is such a real, such a cool sequence of him versus Rinsler because Rinsler is such a badass. This song is awesome. Like this is one of my favorite gym songs. Yeah, not, not bad. Better than the Succession one. You acted like you're great at it. <laughs> I never said I was, but also I don't do it as often. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Sometimes I have to get you to stop singing. <laughs> But this, this sequence is awesome because Rinsler is such a badass, and I love the gravity shifts of the arena. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's just a, a blast. It's so much fun, but it's really important because Rinsler sees Sam bleed. But it shows you that Sam is kind of a match for Rinsler to an extent. You know, he, even though Rinsler outsmarts him, he kind of outsmarts Rinsler too in breaking the glass, and they kind of have a little standoff. I will say, I, as the first time I saw the film, I was confused about Rinsler being Tron. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. For me, I was like, I was like, wait, is that that when Jeff, when uh, Kevin says Tron, he's like Tron when he sees Rinsler. I was like, oh, that's Tron. I yeah, I didn't realize that until then. But I believe it's also related to so when Tron before he was de- reprogrammed into Rinsler, uh-huh. he was hiding as a different. He was hiding himself with this new outfit Elf, with yeah, the all the black mask and helmet yeah. to hide from Clue. Even though uh-huh. I believe he lost the fight to Clue, but escaped in the past. Dude, this sounds like way better than this. Like they should have done that so, for the movie. So Rinsler, I mean Tron was hiding yeah. incognito, and then he got captured by Clue again, and then reprogrammed. I believe that's what happened to Tron. Gotcha. So even though it's ambiguous what happened to him, you think he got killed by Clue in the flashback sequence that when when Kevin's telling Sam what yeah, happened. Yeah, when, when Kevin runs away, yeah. I believe that Tron went into hiding and then got captured and turned into Rinsler. But I think that it's great that Tron is Rinsler. Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's awesome. It's one I, of the I best just, parts of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's great too. But I just wish yeah. I got – I wanted more Rinsler. I want because he could add so much emotional depth to Kevin Flynn and to the struggle between Kevin and – and Clue. They could have, like, captured him, and, and Rinsler's like, fuck you. And Kevin's like, you're Tron, man. We're buds. <laughs> yeah, that would have worked great, man. <laughs> you know what I mean. Just... I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the Jeff Bridges impression. <laughs> yeah. Far my... yeah. out, man. Someone Check ruined the, the, one of the this, lines. Man. Yeah, she fucking ruined it. She couldn't help herself. When Clue... It, the flashback sequence where it's explaining what happened to him and Clue and the digital frontier and the grid when it's Tron, Clue, and Kevin creating a utopia together. Yeah, you're standing in downtown. And yeah. Clue is, like, starting to get control, basically. He yells at Kevin, am I still to create the perfect system? And then Jeff Bridges' character, Kevin, goes, yeah? In, like, the most <laughs> Jeff Bridges voice. Yeah. It's so funny. It's really, but someone said it before dur- he said it. Yeah, and I'm like, why are you ruining the movie? She said it during the moment, during the, like the beat of silence, and it's like, come on, just wait for him to say. You're not in your living room. Yeah, come on. I, you get I it. Agree. You've seen Tron Legacy before. Yeah. We get it. Yeah, I agree. I was like, come on, you ruined. I was the joke. waiting for you it ruined too. It. It's a funny line. It really is. They needed attention, man. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think the concept of Rinsler 
Tron being turned into Rensselaer is freaking awesome. I think it's great. I wish freaking awesome, man. <laughs> That's your word today. Freaking, it's freaking awesome, man. I, I just wanted more Rensselaer outside awesome action sequences. Yeah, I think he could have added a lot more emotional. Yeah, to it. and but for action sequences, the um the the flight battle in the third act is really fantastic. But man, the light cycle battle is amazing, unbelievable. Like I was I was mouth agape watching this in the theater the, last week and. It's so well done. The sound effects, the visual effects, it's the music. Holy crap. And then the design of the environment, the different levels, the ramps, the speed ups, the tunnels. Uh, man, I just was just so blown away by the light cycle battle. And it was, for me, it's the show stopping sequence of the film. And it, it just blew my expectations out of the water from my memory of it. And I found that to be. Without a doubt, my favorite part of the film. And I think it's followed by maybe the best shot in the movie where the light cycle battle is after Rinsler brings Sam to Clue. And Clue's like, obviously, the scene's great because Sam thinks that Clue is his father. And Clue is playing around with it at first. He's playing coy. Like, doesn't say I'm not your father yet. He's just trying to get oh, some different... Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been waiting a long time for Sam. you. Sam. Sam, yeah, yeah. Far out, man. Far out. Yes, I see you too. <laughs> I'm really glad you're here. Then he reveals that he's not his father and that he's Clue. Well, Sam realizes that he is Clue. Clue. And then they go into the light cycle arena and they go against each other. But who is Sam going up against? Clue. And that great shot of basically he's the new god of Tron City. He's worshipped. And he steps out of the ship. Fireworks. And he walks down the arena. Yeah, the fireworks shot of Clue walking. It is insane i love that shot so much it's so badass and i think it's incredible and then obviously like you said light cycle sequence is a show-stopping scene it's astounding what they were able to accomplish visual effects wise compared to the the original tron as well as the video game because the original tron looked very much like the video game tron light cycle version the arcade game and it's obviously back then in 1982 is really incredible effects but when you look at it now it's very crude um but what they were able to create aesthetically and imagine what the light cycles would look like if they were tangible and you can really see them. Really, really incredible stuff. And I, I just love Sam running and breaking ap- apart the baton, which becomes the light cycle. And then later on, that becomes the flying ships for the uh, the Blackguard and Clue later on. So um, Tron was actually created by Steven Lisberger. Um, he was actually from Philadelphia, but he located to Boston in the 70s to pursue a career in computer animation. And he, he had very little uh, competition in operating this industry in the East Coast because nobody back then did Hollywood stuff on the East Coast. And so there was no no competition for anyone telling stories like that for him. And so he created some concept work, sent it to Disney, and Disney greenlit the Tron film. So this guy from Philadelphia, he created like the first ever pieces of Tron in Boston, Massachusetts. Boston, kid. Fucking Boston guy. Yeah, kid. Love and, to hear uh, it. And they, the writers spoke with him um, – as an advisor for the story of this film. And I, I love earlier how you brought up the fact that Clue and Kevin are mirrors of each other, obviously, because Clue, basically what he is as a program, stands for Codified Likeness Utility. He was a hacker program written by Kevin Flynn and played by Jeff Bridges, obviously. Clue looked just like his user, Flynn, but talked in a very different voice than his human counterpart. He's one of the few characters in the Tron universe to have yellow circuitry. The reason for this is the design of programs in Tron. 
free and usually benevolent programs were blue and white. And while those under the control of the MCP were orange, red clue was created outside of the system by coding and technology of Kevin Flynn and therefore not a free program in the game grid or under the MCP and is in differentiated in this movie by the color yellow. So it's either blue or orange for everybody else, but, but clue is yellow. Now clue was designed to create the perfect system. However, this philosophy, which Kevin admits to tr to Clue later on in the film in the third act, is an imperfect system because imperfection, that is the beauty of creation, is the imperfection. And he really admits to Clue that you didn't do anything wrong because I'm the one who's at fault. I'm responsible for the genocide of the eyes. So it's because it's I It's not your fault, Clue. I yeah, it's not your fault. It's not your fault, too. <laughs> Don't say that. It's not your Don't fault, Don't say Clue. that, Kevin. Not you, too. Not you, too, Kevin. <laughs> so basically, I, I love this moment for Kevin because he admits that it's all because of him. He created Clue in his own likeness arrogantly before he knew the truth about perfection and imperfection. He's at fault. He's the reason why the ISO has got destroyed. He really is, and I think he really understands that at the end. He's probably been dealing with that, which is why he's gone to this Zen version of himself. Hey, you're messing up my Zen thing, man. To try to, you know, deal with the fact that he's done this. He's created all this destruction as well as all this life. And I think that's a great character moment for Kevin to admit that it's not Clue's fault. You did what I told you to do. It's my fault. And also, one of my favorite aspects to the film is the idea of um, Kevin says to Sam, you know, Clue, Clue's plan of entering the real world is based on the theory that if we can come here, why can't they go there? And I think that's a, a really terrific setup for the, for the eventual conflict of the, of the end of the film. And I, I really love the idea of programs entering the real world and we obviously get that with Olivia Wilde's character, Cora, entering the real world with Sam at the end of the film, which I really love. I, I like the ending a lot. And I, I thought it was uh, one of the more interesting aspects to the story that they got in there was uh, programs wanting to enter the real world. And what would that be like? And how would that translate into um, real world physics and the ships and vehicles and weaponry that they've developed on the grid are probably fiercely powerful in the real world, which really adds stakes to it. So I like the aspect, and it really opened the door at the end of the film to have an interesting sequel of more programs entering the real world. I remember when the credits rolled, I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to see what else they do to it, but they obviously never did anything. I'm sure Ares might explore that f for sure. Tron, Ares. Ares. <laughs> Jared Leto. <laughs> I am a Tron. <laughs> I am a program. It's, it's, it's Tron in time. It's Tron in time. <laughs> so I think that would be a, it's, it's an interesting concept that I hope they explore in the next film. I hope they do back and forth between being on the grid, yeah. being in the Tron system, and being in the real world. I think that's something that could have benefited Tron Legacy is a little more time in the real world. I think the concepts there are strong. And when you spend so much time there in the first act, then you're just there permanently. It's too similar to Tron, the original. You could have like a hacker in the real world helping Sam out in different ways. Yeah, I think it would have been cool to see a little more of Killy Murphy's character, who's basically the, the head software programming or engineer of NCOM right now, as well as maybe a back and forth between him and Sam, maybe their rivals somehow. 
because I think obviously the Tron system is so fascinating to explore what Kevin Flynn created, this digital universe, digital environment created to basically be a Newtonian playground to experiment and basically challenge the ideas of reality, existence. He says he's going to change the world. Every concept we've ever had about religion, technology, the existence of God, it's all going to change forever because of the Tron system and the grid. And so I think it's really fascinating to spend a lot of time there, but also our world's just as fascinating. And I think it's just as important to the Tron system to explore both worlds, I think, equally together. I think that that's something that Tron Aries, I think, can can benefit from is if not the entire film basically taking place on the grid, but kind of back and forth at the same time, like going in and out of the program. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it could have been interesting to have communications between Sam and another character in the real world. And I know... Like a... a Someone who's on his side helping. Yeah, and like we, you keep bringing up, there's so many similarities between this and The Matrix, and obviously you don't want movies to copy each other, but you can't help it sometimes. And I feel like you're right. If they took more from The Matrix, because one of the great strengths of The Matrix is we're not in The Matrix the whole time. We're yeah, in and out, in yeah. and out, in and out, in and out, four or five times. I think that's very beneficial to the storytelling of such a complex idea. I think that Tron Legacy could have benefited from a little more in and out of the program itself. I keep itself. thinking of Clockwork Orange when you say that. <laughs> Get real <laughs> in and out and out. <laughs> but I do love being on the grid. It's so incredible and fascinating. And I like how time is different there, how it goes through cycles versus obviously the way we experience time. In our world, Tron City is a great, I, it was a great concept as well. Just basically a world within our world. And I love exploring it. And I'm, even though... They're, like Tron Aries is already turning into kind of an internet meme because I think anything Jared because Leto is anything no not us it's already out there is like a meme I, like anything Jared Leto's in because of Morbius is like turning into a meme yeah I'm still really excited about it because I think there's still so much to explore in the world of Tron and I think they could make something really cool and special I think this movie is special but really for just the cult followers and the people that really love it. And it does have so much potential. It had so much potential. It's almost a really great film. But it, it, I still think it's fascinating. I still really love revisiting this movie in this world. <clears throat> so the director of Tron Ares is um, Joachim Ronning, uh, Swedish it looks like, from the spell, from Oslo. So yeah, Swedish. Oh, no, Norwegian, I'm sorry. Um, he's, direct, he's actually a pretty good director. He's made Contiki, which is a good film. Um, but he also did... Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, which is, I would say, probably the weakest of the franchise. And then um, Maleficent, the sequel Maleficent. Um, so he has experience in, in big-budget filmmaking. And so he's working, He's right now in pre-production on Tron Ares. So we'll see going forward uh, the strength of him as a filmmaker. But the, And then the writers of the film... One second while I pull this up. Steven Lisberger, obviously creator of Tron, and then Bonnie McBird. What is Bonnie written? Bonnie is written so Tron Uprising, the TV series, and the original Tron, which is cool. So going back to the original writers, because with this film, they actually got um, TV writers, uh, two guys I had never heard of, um, Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis, the guy from Lost. Yeah, so Adam Horowitz uh, wrote for Lost for a while as a, as a writer's room writer and then also he has he's credited on 20 episodes as a writer um so they were they got the job because they were super fans of tron um but they aren't the best writers you know there's something there's the thing with like the jj abrams 
school of filmmaking keeps he keeps producing like mystery box guys <laughs> mystery box guys and then like writers and filmmakers who just aren't really they don't really have the stuff but they got they got hired on lost or they got hired on the Jennifer Garner show and then JJ helped bring them up the ranks in Hollywood alias, alias thank you and I've seen I don't think I've seen any of the any of his protégés really being strong filmmakers or writers in their own right um Damon Lindelof is the most successful but I mean he's he's kind of messed up some things I really loved so I would say Damon Lindelof is probably the best of them all but like still I'm not really a huge fan of Lindelof so I think when it comes to the writing of Tron Legacy I think they do a great job building the lore and the concepts, the themes, whether it's the grid itself, Tron City, the ISOs, identity disks, the recognizers, which are the big shifts. And I think they do a great job world building and concept building with this film. You know, there's, there's a lot they have to get in there. There's a lot they have to explain. This is a world that most people don't really know anything about when the first time they saw it. Sure, plenty of people saw Tron in 1982, but that was freaking 30 years before this movie came out and i'm sure a lot of people aged out of if they even remember seeing that movie back then mm -hmm. and then a lot of people it's just new people who never even saw the original but they still really like this movie so they have to they had to make this movie for people they were expected who probably didn't see the original and then also make it exciting as well as explaining so many new concepts and just new verbiage in jargon for this interdimensional, I mean, this digital frontier, this digital plane, everything about this world they have to build out as well because the I, the concept was to make sequels and obviously build a franchise out of this, which it took, it's taken 13 years to make a sequel to this movie, which is filming soon. It's supposed to start filming in August, 2023. Hopefully it happens, but it took that long to make a sequel to Tron Legacy. So it's almost... Mm -hmm. Half the time in between the the first two movies. Also, I forgot the another major Jeff Bridges first time director. Who? Tron. <laughs> <laughs> Silly old me. I didn't even put that together. So I think the writers were really great at writing the exposition of the world building, if that makes sense. But then when it came to executing a great story for the entirety of this two hour and twenty minute runtime wasn't quite there for yeah. the second second act going into the third act that transition it really drops the momentum of the film and then they try to i feel like they tried to rush an exciting climax at the end i love the aerial battle it's so cool it, but it's a way to warm you up for the fi for, for the big finale yeah so i think that the rising tension is the biggest pitfall of this film where the rising tension the falling the, tension it, it, yeah. it turns into yeah, intense falling, falling yeah. drop of yeah. tension so they, they lose all the momentum and tension they've built, and then they try to salvage it. They do a pretty good job. I still like the ending of this movie. Yeah, it was a good and, ending. And I love the finale. I love the real ending where Korra's on Earth, gets to see the sun for the first time and feel it. I really love the ending. It, it warms yeah. my heart up every time. Because I want to see the rest of the story. I want to see Sam and Korra going forward. So I'm pretty disappointed that they're not continuing their story. Because I don't know what Tron Ares is going to be about. No one really knows. The plot is completely under wraps. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was a no-brainer to follow Sam and Korra going forward. Yeah, I wonder why they're not pursuing those two characters. Because it's really interesting now that you have a program living on Earth, um, what you can explore with that. Um, but it looks like they're just doing their own new thing now. Because neither of them are in the cast that they've announced. Maybe a cameo. Maybe. Maybe. We'll Maybe see. I'm sure Bridges will have a cameo somewhere. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's got a... I mean, he's dead, though. Is he, though? Fucking blew up, bro. But 
what if his programming is still somewhere oh, yeah. in the in, in, in Tron system? I mean, Sam has that flash drive at the end of the film. It's a blinking blue light in there. What's on that flash drive? Is it a backup of the Tron system? Is it the the coding of his father that he somehow took out of there? Dates and numbers. <laughs> the identity disc of Kevin Flynn. They oh, use yeah, they that to it. escape. Yeah. So is because the identity disc itself just to explain. Well, because yeah, when Cora comes back into the into the grid, she'll have the disc automatically, right? Exactly. So yeah. identity disc or light discs are the most fundamental piece of equipment in two programs in both the game grid and the Tron system. They contain. All that a program is in the form of a detachable glowing disc normally worn on the upper back. Everything seen, heard, or otherwise experienced is recorded to recorded on the wearer's disc. Even everything from before the disc is first acquired or reacquired. Obviously, this is why when Sam gets his disc, we include, takes it, and he's like, oh, hey, man, what's up? Come on in. Let me check out your disc. You got this? And you can see the memories of Sam in the previous events from the scenes before he entered, obviously. Now, discs have two primary functions as weapons and for storing information. Is the entirety of Kevin Flynn's life and existence and soul in terms of a digitized coding on the identity disc, can they use that to resurrect their father inside a different program, another Tron system somewhere else? A better, faster grid. And then can they pull him out of the system? That makes sense. That could totally work. I think he's still alive. Yeah, you're right. He could totally be alive still. He could be brought back, for sure. Exactly. And like Cutter inter- says. An interesting fact is that um, after they did principal photography on this film, since it's a Disney production and they had purchased Pixar at the time, the Pixar writing team actually helped do rewrites for um, additional photography after the fact. Oh, cool. And they, they applied more um, backstory to Sam. I think maybe they rewrote his entire introduction, possibly. Now, I also want to explain ISOs real quick. Because this is what Cora is. She's the miracle now. She's the last miracle. surviving miracle. <laughs> miracle. You keep saying miracle. M- miracle. <laughs> you Mir- keep saying miracle. 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 Think of mirror. Miracle. You don't say. You don't say mirror. I say miracle, baby. <laughs> miracle. Miracle. She is the miracle. <laughs> the ISO are isomorphic algorithms. Were a race of programs that spontaneously evolved on the grid as opposed to being written by users. Their existence was considered a miracle by Kevin Flynn. Nice. However, Kluke considered them to be an obstruction in his mission to create the perfect system. ISOs differed from the basic programs, not in their appearance and capabilities, but in the u- uniqueness of their code base. They were said to be different due to them not being programmed or controlled by functions, protocols, and the need for purpose. While regular programs conform to the rigid structure defined by their users, ISOs evolved complete with a genetic code of sorts that even Kevin Flid could scarcely comprehend. This inner structure of their code would potentially have allowed ISOs to develop beyond the capabilities of regular programs. Now, the Purge, or the ISO War, is the name given to the monumental act of genocide within the Tron system instigated to full eradication of the ISOs from the system by Clue. However, he doesn't know that Korra survived. Yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's, I mean, it's an interesting story that I wish I could have seen instead of just a couple flashback shots. Yeah. And so I think Olivia Wilde's great as Korra, too. She's, yeah, she's really fantastic. charming. Yeah. I love, like, kind of, like, the the program, computer programming mix of human personality. Like, the way she laughs is really, like, sounds like a program laughing, but also human at the same time, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. She's got this um, naivety and an innocence to her. 
um, and an infectious, charming personality. She's she's great in the in the role. She's fantastic, and I I really like her and Sam. Um, I think it's it's important that they don't kiss at the end, but they clearly have a connection. You know what I mean? And I think that that smile that Kevin he gives like a little smirk when he sees them flirting. He's like, nice. Yeah, I think they didn't want to do completely everything that Tron did in 1982, where yeah. obviously falling in love with the program in that film, in you know the multiple kisses. Multiple kisses. <laughs> Jim, were there any boobs in there? <laughs> no Tron boobs. No, no boobs. No Tron boobs. So you hate it. <laughs> Where are the boobs in Tron? <laughs> People have been making fun of you. It's funny. It's a good bit. Yeah. It's a good recurring bit. Did it have boobs in it? Then James didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone doesn't understand, I, I just always make fun of Hollywood because they just eliminated nudity over the last five to six years. It's not so much to make fun of you, you're like angry about it. It's just it's funny. <laughs> you rant about it. It's funny, that's why. It's a good it's a good recurring joke. Yeah, it, but it happened. It's it a hasn't. funny joke. It has happened. <laughs> They just disappeared. Where are the boobs in Hollywood? <laughs> PG, Not my Hollywood. PG thirteen. We're guaranteed every. Not my Hollywood. <laughs> Not my Tron. <laughs> um, but overall, I know we were a little bit nitpicky with this film. It's not. It doesn't mean it's because we don't really like it. I I really love this movie a lot. Anthony, I think this is maybe. I like it. this movie. Yeah. You earlier in the beginning of the episode, you said I fucking hate Tron Legacy. <laughs> But I think it's because there's so much potential. That's why we wanted to really break down. You know, I've seen this movie like eight times, and I've had so much to say about it. Finally, got the opportunity to. How's it feel? Feels good. <laughs> Feels good. <laughs> I think is um, I really liked it in theaters when we first saw it. But then on rewatches, it it's a, one of those films for me that rewatches diminish it. Um, and then this last rewatch, I've just really like. I like it. I like it. Um, it has a lot of things that I really enjoy, but as a whole, I'm not a big fan of the movie. I revisit the music very often. Oh yeah, the score is great. Often, yeah, it's, it's great. Gym so, tracks, so terrific. Yeah. But that wraps our episode on Tron Legacy. Thanks so much for tuning into this breakdown and analysis of the 2010 film from Joseph Kaczynski and Disney. Let us know what you think about Tron Aries. What do you think it'll be about? It's Troning time. <laughs> it's Troning time. Will Jeff Bridges be back as Clue? Are you disappointed that they're not going to follow the story of Sam Flynn and Cora in the real world? I'm kind of disappointed by that too. But recently we have Greta Lee, who was just in past lives, has been cast in it, as well as Evan Peters have also been cast in it. And I'm sure he's playing Quicksilver. In- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's playing Quicksilver in the Tron system. <laughs> no, he's, I'm kidding. He's playing Jeffrey Dahmer. In- <laughs> um, but let's know- show you some light cycles. Let's <laughs> let's know your thoughts about Tron Aries and Tron Legacy. Take care, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons: Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen. Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our chosen one patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.